Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about the world of books and reading. Today is Friday, April 28th, 2023. We sit here at the precipice of summer. Rebecca, we were just talking summer books for first, or excuse me, May books for first edition. But if not the, the wider world of summer, in the publishing world, May ushers in summer reading indeed um, it does kind it's gotten nice here got the windows open it's balmy i'm wearing shorts i've got limes ready to be juiced tequila ready to be shaken feeling good today how are you doing rebecca i'm good we're in uh april showers mode here oh, okay. it's cool you came from it's us. cool and rainy but i'm in the middle of a giant novel and that's exactly what I want. We're yeah. at the end of a week of a lot of podcasts and a lot of calls. Oh and when I am Lord. done talking to you, I am just going to go back to my nest and read a book. So that I'm feeling good. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm ready for the promise of summer as well, but I don't hate a moment before the South turns full summer to just, you know, get back in the couch nest for a moment. So I'm ready. Um, <laughs> And with this time of year comes moms, dads, and grads recommendations. So we're going to be recording that show a week from weekish from today. So if you're listening mm-hmm. to this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you've got a chance to to shoot us an email. We're a little undersubscribed, so we've, you've got a chance to get in there. It is first comes first serve. Um, we'll see how many we get. Uh, sometimes there's a late rush, but usually it's front loaded. So I'm not sure what the quietude is about. Of course, now having said that, there'll be 50 that come in tomorrow. <laughs> but we're going to get to always a fun time on the show. Remember, it's moms, dads, and grads, but it's really just an excuse to do recs. It can be for you. It could be for an aunt. It could be for a teacher. could be for, you know, your your AI-generated personalized chatbot that you want to have a little book club with. Um, I just made that up, but I just terrified myself. I was very, I got to be careful bleak prospect. here. Yeah, yeah, I don't like that. So <laughs> Send your so request good. to podcast at bookriot.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> please don't go to JetGPT. Maybe that's what everyone's doing. They, they just pounded their recs into being.ai and they're getting um, they're getting the Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern without even having to consult us. <laughs> if uh, ChatGPT can give you a read-alike for the Night Circus, that makes you happy, that actually satisfies that request, then I will cede my position to the Just hang them up. Frankly. You know, hang them up. We're done here. Uh, Let's do our first sponsor break and we'll come back to news. Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Um... So on first edition, the one that came out uh, most recently, Kelly Jensen and Vanessa Diaz and I 
in anticipation of the adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloon, which comes out wide today, Friday 28th, we did a little prep. We reread, we did some homework, shared our feelings and our thoughts, had a really good time getting ready for it because we had a suspicion. Hey, it's it's one of the, it's like, it's a seminal work of the the 20th century or, you know, I made the mm-hmm. joke before. It really is. It's not seminal. It's whatever the opposite of that is. Um, and it holds up great. And please check out our discussion there if you're interested in the book at all, if you're thinking about the movie. And then the other thing that happened is Kelly got a press screening and she thought it was great. I'll link to her review that she wrote for Book Ride in the show notes. We thought it could be. The vibes were good. We didn't do a confidence index for Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we did, or if we if we would have, I think we would have given it high marks. I think it checks all of our boxes from the team that did Edge of 17, which is also really wonderful. That's YA, not middle grade, which Are You yes. There, God, It's Me, Margaret is. But a sensibility that feels modern and timeless at the same time. Um and you put in a note here that it seems to be doing pretty well. I am surprised. Yeah. I didn't think about this. I would have bet. Now, maybe my, the default case is that it should be a streamer. But this felt like this would have been a Netflix movie or an Amazon Prime movie. It's going right to theaters. They're doing it the old-fashioned ways, just like it's still 1970. I love this for so many reasons. I reread Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, this week so that I could be fresh for this yes, adaptation. I wanted to talk to you about that, but we can do that I whenever listened. you want to do that. Yeah. We, yeah, and then I listened to y'all talk about it on first edition, so I am caught up and ready. I'm so glad it's going wide in theaters and that it looks so good and that it's just like stocked with amazing talent, but it did $600,000 in box office in the Thursday previews yesterday as yesterday. we're talking about this. And so that means there's a really strong chance that it could exceed the 7 to $9 million projected uh, opening weekend that they're anticipating for it. The last time that Kelly Freeman Craig and James L. Brooks worked together, as you were saying, was on Edge of 17. Um, and there are no noting that Edge of 17 to 220,000 in the Thursday previews, and then it had a 4.75 million opening. Mm. So if this tracks there, they'll be looking at like low double digits, maybe a like 10 to $12 million opening weekend mm. for a movie like this would just be incredible. There are now like what, maybe three generations of readers, if not four that Easily. have had connections. Yeah. Connections Easily. and experiences with, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. And this like it feels like an old fashioned family movie. Like it's not a superhero thing. It's not a multiverse. There's not a weird hook. This is just a story about people living their lives. And it's also not supposed to be high art. And, you know, I, I love movies and I see a lot of them, but there's that, it has felt like over the last couple of years, especially a really big divide. It's either something that is supposed to be like, relatively low to middle brow, fun for the whole family. You won't have to think about anything or pretty high brow, big art. And some of those like everything everywhere all at once managed to break out and cross over and become like mainstream hits in some way. But this is, there's not a gimmick here. This is just no. a story about a 12 year old girl living her 12 year old girl life with a glimpse into what's going on with her parents as well. I'm super curious to see it and see like how much is how much is about the parents, how much screen time yeah. do they get? They don't get much screen time in the book, but are we, you know, evening out the playing field? Yeah, McAdams a is a sharp knife not to He's use to wonderful. cook a little bit. You know, like the book, yeah, the, book letter, the mom is there, but I don't know that you'd yeah. think like, well, that's a Rachel McAdams part. Kathy Bates on the other hand, yes. the grandmother comes in, super I can imagine, like a flamethrower uh, throughout. <laughs> 
Yeah, just really, really wonderful. And I'm, I just, I'm so glad for an excuse to have reread the book. Like I trotted down to my Barnes and Noble <laughs> and picked up a paperback copy. It's the one where it looks like she's texting God on the cover. Had a lovely afternoon reading it this weekend. It's like, all right. And I, I just suspect that there are tons of people in our generation yeah. and the, the generations that have come after us that are doing that same thing. Just a chance to revisit a story that meant a lot to us for a variety of reasons as young people. And now the folks in our generations who have had kids are getting to share it with their kids. And that's just really cool and very special. Yeah. I was thinking about that context of like, this is a all ages kind of movie. I mean, maybe you're not going to take a five-year-old to it. I don't know. You could. I mean, it's unless you're that worried about periods, which you shouldn't be, which is sort of the whole point of the book, but that's still right. neither here nor there, except that it's still a thing. But this kind of, it's emotional, right? It's about feelings. It's about experiences. It's about relationships. Weirdly, the people that have carved this space out for themselves is Pixar. Like, but it's right. because, you know, feelings having feelings or toys having feelings or dinosaurs having feelings. <laughs> it's, it's like Pixar or Noah Baumbach. Yeah. Well, but that's not for that. Oh, I guess you're like Isle of, Isle of Dogs or Fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox or something like that. But the gimmick here is life. That's what the gimmick mm -hmm. is here. It's not, there is no other gimmick to this. And that gimmick yeah. still holds up because people are weird. We still don't do very well talking about women's bodies. Puberty is going to be hard for everyone. Even if we talked really a lot all the time about it, mm -hmm. there's still no really prepping you for it, even though, you know, in my kids' generation, it's not perfect. Don't give me, don't mistake me. It's completely different than what I got oh, at this age. I bet. Um, and if you're ever with me at a bar, I will tell you the story of my um, sex ed class that met at the hospital that I told, <laughs> I've told in front of you at least a half a dozen times. I had occasion to tell it recently. Oh. Yeah, I have retold this story to yeah. people who've never met you. It's such a good story. That's like the ultimate piece of bonus content that we'll right. never release. Probably yeah, never, never release. Yeah, that's you got to pay folding money uh, for something <laughs> else like that. But like, it's so refreshing to see, and it's so overdue, right? I mean, Judy Bloom is mm -hmm. a living legend, but she hasn't had the big adaptation. You know, th that is a that's a yeah. threshold. We were talking to someone in a different context this week by why, why one author isn't bigger than they are. Mm -hmm. And to jump up into sort of, and I'm not talking like LeBron James, you know, you know, that kind of, you know, Rihanna, that kind of, but even where you, someone could say, oh, who is that? And they're like, oh yeah, I've heard, or maybe you could have even that kind of interaction around someone. I think Judy Bloom is as, as high as you can get without having a signal adaptation that you know, more people will yeah. see this than have probably read the book in like three months. I remember the the producers mm -hmm. of the Rent movie saying something to that effect. It's like, why do this? I mean, I'm sure there's a financial piece of it, but like more people will see the movie version in the first six months that could ever see the Broadway play just because of the distribution right. and everything else. So it feels alive. It still feels relevant. Um, I think, you know, it made sense to keep it where it is in terms of the timeline. Um, there's mm -hmm. something, there's something that makes it even more, I don't know. It, it takes it, by making it specific in a time that feels long enough ago now, it accentuates the timelessness. But uh, I, I'm I'm looking forward to see. I don't think we're going to go see it this weekend, but we will see it um, pretty soon. Your reading experience was it what you thought? What was your what was your shock so, of recognition quotient on this? Thing? It was in my memory. This is the book about being a 12 year old girl where you get your period, and yeah. that like in my memory, there's so much period stuff. And that is just not true. <laughs> That's I mean, what it's, my there. Brain. it's there. It's there. It's right. there. Yeah, yeah. Like the girls talk about it a couple of times. Margaret buys period supplies and tries them out. I had the same experience that Vanessa and Kelly talked 
talked about on first edition where when I was a kid, they had not yet updated like the technology in the book to accurate period products for the moment. So they were using sanitary belts in the book. And I was like, what is this? Suspenders Um, and pulleys, you know, simple machines of various kinds. Nobody told me that this was going to be involved. Uh, And Margaret gets her period at the end of the book, but it was so much more about understanding herself in the context of her family and especially religion Mm -hmm. than I remembered. And I'm really curious about how the movie, how much weight the movie will give that and how that plays, because it was certainly a question like she talks in the the, the big struggle for her is that her father was Jewish and her mother was raised Christian and their families, neither family liked that they were going to marry someone from a different religious tradition. And so they raised Margaret without religion and decided that she would be able to choose her own when she was an adult. But she's like at a new school and the kids all want to know, like, basically, do you go to Sunday school or do you go to Hebrew school? Do you join the Y or do you join the Jewish community center? And she can't figure out where she fits in there because she hasn't been given a designated place. How is she supposed to figure this out on her own? And American culture has shifted so far away from your religious community being the center of your cultural identity, like over the last 60 years since this book, 50 years, 60 years since the book Mm -hmm. first came out, that I don't know how relatable that is to, you know, kids that are going to encounter the book today, to kids that will see the movie. It's just not as central of a question. And I I think that's that contributes to why it's smart to set the movie in the 70s. This you can then say, well, this was how it was back then, but I was surprised by how prominent that is in the themes of the story and how relatively minimal on the page the puberty stuff is, but also how timeless Judy Bloom's capturing of sort of the, just the really difficult social dynamics between young girls are where you want to have friends and be in the group. And sometimes like competitiveness comes in do you trust this person or do you not? Do you trust them while they're letting you be in the in-group, but should you really not trust them because tomorrow mm-hmm. you'll be in the out-group? Just like that, the difficulty of that math is, I think, just true for every generation and that she captured it so, so well. It's like God-level writing when you think about the constraints mm-hmm. of writing for 10-year-olds, right? This is stuff literary fiction tries to do. How do you relate to other people? How yes. do you be good? How do you be bad? How do you navigate what you want with what other people want? And again, it's not, you know, it's it's just not going to be, you know, Sally Rooney or something else like that. But right. it, given the constraints of what it's trying to do and what the audience is, it's a remarkable achievement. And yeah, I, you know, some people get turned off because of their, they think there's, there is quite a bit of that more than I remembered of the religious stuff. And it's there on the tin. That's like, it's, are you there? God, right. it's, like it's on there, but it's also not that much Shouldn't either. Like, you don't, it's not even about right. that. It's about being 12 about this particular yeah, it's, character being 12. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's not about, should I believe in God? What would I get from it? Yeah. Which religion is right for me? Like Margaret thinks that's what she's doing, but she's just trying to understand how she fits in and where and how to find your place when no one has given you a designated place and a, a preset context for understanding yourself. Yeah. So go check out first edition. We did a long discussion on the most recent episode at the top of that. Um, it was really fun to do. And Vanessa and, and Kelly were great. Um, I also got inspired because I was doing research for um, uh, reading. And when you Google, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. The first thing you realize is 
There have been 9,000 <laughs> editions of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Oh, yes, there have. And so kind of on a whim, I use the occasion to whip up. A, you know, I used to be a writer, Rebecca. I used to write sometimes. And I don't yeah, get to do Yeah, then the internet got us. Yeah, well, and then, you know, I, I got different jobs in the old days when I used to do a lot of the writing for the site. Anyway, um, I used the format of the first edition Substack to whip together a uh, a list in which I assessed the relevance of various editions of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret's covers to what's actually in the book. And let me just say to you, unto you, <laughs> it varies. It, it <laughs> uh, sure does. It, it varies. It was fun. So you can you can see that on the Substack and check it out there if you want. To I don't envy the cover detail. designers who have to try to capture this. I think like, I do say it's a difficulty of like 10,000 um, level mm-hmm. to get into this, but you can still like say get the Margaret's hair color right. I mean, look, let's right. let's at least let's let's pick up the easy ones. If we can. There's a lot of angst on those book covers, and there's not a lot of angst on the page. It's maybe my biggest. Yeah, takeaway. it's it's unusual, and it's it's an and I think even the marketing to twelve year olds have gotten older since 1970, mm-hmm. and I and I don't mean that in terms of sophistication necessarily, but I think in terms of how they're marketed to and what they see in the world, um, which is also very interesting. They don't want to buy books that look like kids' books, where I think when it first came out, or especially in the 80s, the 80s covers, anyway, I said I wasn't going to get into it here, I just went it's, into it, but anyway, go check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see. It was, I, I even had a moment, like, I know this is a middle grade book, and it felt weird walking into the children's section of Barnes & Noble to get it. It's a real conundrum because my kids are right now 10 and 12. And they're between. And I'm not saying tween like, you know, a stereotype. And I I, I learned that the tween um, word was like invented in the late 80s. So there's a reason mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like it was around in the 70s. It's not mentioned in this book at all. But they can handle, they can handle a lot more than they used to and not. And they can be really young kids a lot of the time and then not. So it's yeah, hard. It's, it's very difficult um, to see. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating. Interesting. Um, yeah. Another interesting thing coming out of rereading this was I think in a lot of ways, like 12 year olds today are more innocent than 12 year olds were in the seventies. Mm. <laughs> like it, children's entertainment is a lot more is a lot gentler even than children's well, there's a lot was more we of it you, you, you can spend all your time just consuming 10 and 11 you're on disney plus right whereas when when we right. even when we were 10 and 12 like you were just exposed to more adult stuff on right. cable and stuff it just you like just was a, around like now and then was a movie that now defined my then. like I, I think probably like 10 to 14 year old viewing i watched that movie oh, a billion yeah. times yeah mine was you know, stand by the, me but i was a little, I'm okay. a little bit older than you are but kind of same vibe and there is a like a lot of darkness and kind of heavy content to that like they're dealing with like death of parents they're dealing with other like really big difficult issues one of the girls like fakes dying jumping off a cliff and drowning and like does it as a joke but i was like this would i I rewatched it last summer and i was like they would never make this movie right now to market it to to children it's just so much darker and more difficult than most of the material and like that Mm -hmm. divide between both Kids are more maybe savvy in how they understand media and what's marketed to them, but the content of the media is often like what we consider to be age appropriate has really shifted yeah. um, from when like when I was that age, and that's just fascinating to see as well. But these well, issues of like, like what Pixar it's like to be twelve, out, yeah. Pixar kind of figured out how to 
have big feelings without the darkness. And there's very, I mean, there's sadness, but it's not darkness in that kind of way. Or like my girl, they would never make my girl today. Right. It would never and like, happen. Part of me is like, that's kind of a tragedy is my girl's wonderful. Yeah. And horrible. Um, right. And it, we, it, we also move past the um, let's kill the dog for pathos uh, version right, of children's right. literature. So it comes and goes, but I think what you're hearing us vortex around is how special this text is um, mm-hmm. and how u- unusual it is even today. Um, and yes. that's what the great ones do. That's what the great ones yeah. do. Long so may she reign. Yeah. Let's do our second sponsor break. Oh man. So <laughs> look, speaking of things coming back around a twilight TV series in the works. <laughs> did you see the trailer for the hunger games thing? The, I did. The, that looks so bad. It looks unbelievably <laughs> terrible. I didn't want this. This is. I didn't want it either. The Harry Potter thing and this thing and this prequel. We are in the Baroque stage of the adaptation Gold Rush. I'm calling it now. Yeah. We did hit. We did hit it. I don't know when. I called it. You know, like I said before, I've called the peak ten times before it actually happened. But all of this is late stage streaming. That's what this is. That's what this is. It is. It's late stage streaming. I have a little more generosity for a Twilight reworking because the first, especially Twilight movie, is so bad. But the don't special people like effects it? I thought people liked are it. So, well, I mean, yes, I don't know. I don't have a good, but, I don't have my, I don't know. I have my sense of that. That is my <laughs> mental model. You, you know better than I. Yeah. I mean, I think the books are not great, but as adaptations go, the movie is like, He's supposed to be sparkling and he just looks kind of sweaty. Like the effects in the first one are not awesome. And there's a way that, you know, CGI has just evolved enough since the first ones came out that adaptations of Twilight could have at least the, at least the special effects will be better. Like how well they capture the story or if people are interested in seeing new actors play those iconic roles. Like, can we really have other people be Bella and what's-his-face? Probably not. If <laughs> you have to say what's-his-face, I think the answer is yes, you could have someone else be what's-his-face. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> but I was not a Twilight stan, so I don't know. The movies like, made $3.4 billion worldwide, yeah. so people went to see these things. That's now, whether true. or not they're firing them up on Netflix on Saturday night with some popcorn, right. I don't is know the answer Is anybody re-watching these? I don't know the answer yeah. to that. I also don't know. This is where a book scan account would be useful. How well mm-hmm. do these books continue to sell? Like, Great question. I understand why... HBO is like, I understand the business case HBO has made for the Harry Potter thing because Mm -hmm. those books continue to move. They are passed on from generations of readers. Insert all your standard caveats here that we have discussed ad nauseum about JK Rowling and why we don't want to watch that show. Just like, don't add us. We're not endorsing it. I don't know if Twilight is continuing to sell. Like, how does Twilight hold up? Are the are new generations of teens picking it up and reading it? Or is this like for the know. Twilight moms? Because yeah, Twilight maybe. moms do still exist. Yep. I was in Forks, Washington last summer, and that is still alive and well. So maybe that's what this is. Maybe that's who the audience is for it. But I just hope the special effects are better. That's all well, I have to maybe say. Maybe if you, if you build it, they were come. Like this in this piece that's in deadline, or excuse me, Hollywood reporter says like this is one of the big IPs that Lion Gates have. And one thing mm-hmm. we know is they're going to squeeze IP until they know they for are. sure that there's no blood, there's no juice in there. And not only that, they'll squeeze, they'll squeeze to the point in which they discover there's a razor blade in there. Um, and 
I guess we'll find out. Just off the top of the dome, if you're taking the Twilight franchise or the Hunger Game franchise into the future right now, which one are you taking? I'm not kidding. I mean, this is not supposed to be a bit sort of, but like, I don't have a good sense of this because they both seem to me pretty lifeless on the whole, but uh, I was more of a Hunger Games person at large for sure. Same. And they were both really products of their time. Man, you know, Twilight was one of the selling points of Twilight was that it was steamy, but quote unquote clean. Like I was bookseller when the books came out. Because you're so sweaty that you're not going to touch anybody. You're like, I'm so sweaty. There was like a certain kind of parent that would endorse this for their kids because it had all the like romance and teenage desire stuff I mean, it's but there's Amish not romance actual... stuff we can just say it like there's a yeah, chase yeah, yeah, right. yearning there's a chase yeah. yearning yes. vibe in there's... a market for this stuff that it's fine right. there's it's just what it is and there's not actual sex until like yeah. the later books and i think that the sex happens after they get married so it fits into a certain kind of moral mm-hmm. framework it's a promise but, ring like, you... promise ring it IP. Is. but like euphoria is what the teens are watching today so I don't no. know that they're hungry for the super chaste, just clammy handed or, romance. Are they going to punch it up a little bit, you know, put some teeth Maybe. on those vampires ironically? I mean, it's possible. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I think like just by a hair, I would give the edge to the Hunger Games franchise surviving. There's more interesting. There are more interesting corners to build out in that world. Yeah. I'm not interested in going to any more corners of that world, but I think you could find some new, like the right creator could find some new life for that story. I think a little bit more easily than for Twilight. Yeah. I, I was talking to my kid's librarian a couple of weeks ago and I was just taking her temperature on like what the kids are reading and so on and so forth. And I asked explicitly about the hunger games. Like are people picking it up? Because mm. I was thinking for, for my older son, 10's a little young. I mean, hunger Games is pretty grisly. Um, and it's yeah. not that, Rowan couldn't handle it. My daughter, she just doesn't enjoy that. Like she doesn't like violence. She's doesn't find it interesting. Like turns away, like physically I'm out. I'm just going to get out of here But with Ames. And she's like, not really. I mean, some, um, and it comes and goes. Mm-hmm. I think the, the shadow and bone series has done a lot of work. Apparently they're, they're reading shadow and bone a lot. They're picking those things up. And then all the books, frankly, that the hunger games and twilight and Harry Potter rot keeper of lost cities. There's a whole bunch of these, giant chunky middle grade fantasies that have come out to fill the same hunger to the point that my daughter's teacher said in our parent teacher conference mm-hmm. that he's encouraging and he's encouraging Rowan and, and encouraging us to encourage her to read something that's not big chunky fantasy. Like that's great to read Interesting. something, but they yeah. get so into it that they don't right. try other stuff because there's just so much of this. So I guess this is all feeding into the same kind of a question because in hindsight, it's hard to remember even the, in the moment how huge these franchises were. These middle grade mm-hmm. to YA to Hunger Games by the end is kind of adult. Like Mockingjay is pretty rough. Like it's about PTSD yeah. and people yeah. are getting aced in the face left and right. Like it's not great. Um, but it's so wild to have this stuff because these things are even newer than Harry, right? I mean, the first Harry mm-hmm. Potter book comes out in 96. These things are a decade later. So it, it's all yeah. so much newer. Um, not what I want myself, but if people like it and you know, it's doesn't, everything doesn't have to be for me, but kind of bummed 
to see it. I was really disappointed. I because I had thought about reading song Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. I really liked. I even liked. I like that whole series. I even actually liked Mockingjay better. I know you didn't, and a lot of people didn't like the end of mm-hmm. that very well. But I'm the outlier there. But and I was like, if maybe if the movie looks cool, I'll go read it and I'll do a segment on what was the Hunger Games and maybe still do that. But I watched the trailer. I was like, it looks so bad. I I just I can't believe it. It just. I think at this point, I mean, we're it's 15 years out since Mockingjay almost, maybe, maybe more than that. And it's just hard to keep any story feeling fresh that long. This is, it's very much like late stage streaming. And also the, the like thing we've been talking about with movie studios having preference for existing IP because audiences do seem in some ways to want that, the thing that's familiar and predictable, but like, as as readers who like messy literary fiction and some stuff that does something new, show me mm-hmm. show me something I haven't seen before. That that's what I want. Something surprising and weird and interesting that I haven't seen before. I don't really want a predictable experience, or that's not what I always want. I'd like the option for something yeah. interesting and weird. That it's like there's so much money here, and to just see it going into like giving second life to things whose first lives weren't really that long ago when we could be investing in new creators, new art, new stories, new ways of seeing the world. You know, that's the real bummer to me here. And since there is so much streaming, I understand why, because if you make a Twilight or a Hunger Games thing, you don't have to do the hard, you, have to, you don't have to do the first thing, which is tell the people what the hell it is, which is kind of right. the hardest thing. Like when we're talking about debut literary fiction, the hardest thing is telling people what it is and why they should care. And you've already cleared that bar. Now, you know, there's limitations to that and so on and so forth, but I get it. I definitely, I definitely get it. It's just, it's so strange to be in a world in which things that you saw and read as an adult are being remade already. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, we're not that old. Yeah. I'm ready to see big remakes like 30 years out seems right. A full mm-hmm. generation. <laughs> but yeah. like, no, it's too soon. Speaking of things we don't like, um, I don't Ugh. think we're going to like break this down in utter detail, but I think it's telling and important to keep our eyes on not just the, um, I guess, the actions of mm-hmm. banning, censoring, and otherwise strip mining the libraries and curricula of, let's be honest, LBGQ plus content. It's just, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um this is the top 13 most challenged books of 22 as compiled by the American Library Association, number one. And the number of challenges, I think, is telling, too. It's Genderqueer um, by Maya mm-hmm. Kobabe. We've talked about this on the show before. It was challenged 151 times. LBGQ plus content claimed to be sexually explicit. The next ones are All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. 86 times. So genderqueer, almost twice the number of challenges. This has become the poster text um, yeah. for if, this. If it the has. book it were called has. anything other than genderqueer, you know, something less right. incendiary to a particular population, it would be really interesting to know what that is. Like mm-hmm. the title does a lot of the work there. And I think it's, it's smart because it will attract a reader who is looking right. for a story and needs that story, that representation, needs whatever this book has to offer, but it also has the, that Streisand effect of it will, right. it will attract. And also for people who don't people. even read things before they ban them, right. this one's easy. Exactly. Exactly. You, read the you can just look case. at the cover and be like, yeah. well, it says genderqueer. It must be bad. Uh, in the same way that one of the ones farther down the list, this book is gay by Juno Dawson. Just like, lean into it, big, right? They're going to come for you anyway. Yeah. Just, just wave it, baby. 
Right. You you don't have to read that book. And we know that they're not reading that book no, before that book. they challenge it. The fact that it's a big rainbow cover is, and says this book is gay is kind of mm-hmm. all it tells them everything that they need to know. And you know, the Queen Tony holding it down at number three, 73 challenges for the bluest eye. I'm not going to defend anything on here. I, I'm going to make this absolutely clear right now, just b- before I say the next thing. It's the only really fully adult title on here. This is not a YA title. Let, mm-hmm. Let's so no. I kind of get it. Like this is an adult title. Now, reading something at 13 is different reading at 17. Like my first Morrison I read in high school at 17, 18. It's tough for anyone of any age, but this one I kind of get because it's not a kid's book. And it's like 12-year-olds probably I wouldn't recommend it. I'm certainly not going to take it out of the library. Don't make any mistake. Again, you hear all the caveats on my voice, but this is mm-hmm. an adult book that's hard for adults to read. This is the only one like I can see a case where like maybe don't push it forward at the very least, but that's enough. That's all I'm going to say about that because it's it's tough. Yeah. The the piece that perked my ears up, eyes up about the challenges on the bluest eye, and I haven't gotten into the deep content about it, is that one of the objections to it is that it has EDI content, which is the same, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion content. Well, those those people can go jump off something high, but that's a different. But also, like how you can read the blue, like the bluest eye is about a lot of things, and certainly gets at race and class and identity. But you have to be doing some kind of like really twisted, half critical reading to arrive at. Yeah, this is diversity content and mean and twisted. I mean, that's just what that is. Um, some old, yeah. some old familiar faces here. Absolutely true story of a part-time Indian. This has been around since we've been doing the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, you know, me and Earl and the Dying Girl that comes and goes. I, yeah, I think the ones that don't have LBGTQ plus explicitly on it um, have been around for a while. I guess A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Moss. Remember, this was the title at the subject of the effort in Virginia just to get these out of Barnes and Nobles. That was really testing. Mm-hmm. That was really a heat check from the banners. Like, can we come after the stores for even carrying it or putting it in a spe- specific section? There's some pretty spicy sex stuff in there. Again, I'm not saying to get out of the library, but um, anything that's not LB- about LBGQ plus here is about an outlier on these lists. That That's mm-hmm. just what it is. I don't know. I don't know what yeah, to say. It's just I, can't, I don't want to say this adds to anything like, to the discourse here. Yeah, keep just talking about it. I don't know. We're we're seeing people just object to textual acknowledgement that young people have sexual right. desires, urges, identities, and behaviors. Like yeah. the I'm a, I'm a little surprised every year that the Sherman Alexi one stays on the list because mm-hmm. it is so relatively tame. You know, against like how spicy some of the Sarah J. Moss is like the character just refers to masturbation. There's not even a description of it. He just refers to that. He's like a champion of it because he's a teenage boy and most of them are. I wonder if there's a certain like momentum to have it been challenged for a while. Like it's just known. It's oh, like, maybe. it's like how people know Finnegan Wake is hard, even though they haven't even cracked yeah. it open. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like these if lists and these challenges. To, yeah. They're just yeah, ready. You're primed to, to challenge books before. and you see this on your kid's reading list and you yeah. have seen that it's been challenged elsewhere. You just take it, you know? Yeah. yeah th- this broad claim that a book is sexually explicit can mean all kinds yes. of things. And it seems to mean, you know, all kinds of things to the book banners. But yeah, it's it's about, we know this is not really about books. No. It's about 
control. And the the note here that Kelly Jensen made when she covered this for Book Riot was usually this is a top 10 list, but this year it is a top 13 because there's a four-way tie for 10th place. Uh, and as we noted a couple of weeks ago, the number of challenges in, 22, in 2022 uh, was double, nearly doubled the number from 2021. Uh, so the troubling trend remains troubling. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm now in, uh, in tab navigation. Oh, Barnes and Noble. I need to talk to the PR rep for Barnes and Noble because (laughs) James Daunt is available. He is. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. You put this in here. I don't know. They're doing well. Their returns. So, um, if you are interested in accounting, and also the book business. One thing you may be interested in, I just lost everyone. Like, you know, uh, everyone's gone. <laughs> but one of the things for a bookstore to operate efficiently is to get the number of returns down. That means books they keep on their shelves, they don't ultimately sell, and then return for the publisher. Bookstores are weird in this regard, in which they can just return the books mm-hmm. and get their money back. Um, and the reason I believe that this happens is publishers do not want to disincentivize bookstores from carrying stuff. They don't want to have right. to make it like we're we're burning money and taking a chance on this book because they will become more conservative. There'll be fewer title stock and fewer copies of them. And that's not what booksellers want. They want there to be a bunch. They want to be able to put that literary debut title on a shelf and at least give it a chance. Whereas Barnes & Noble's already started to do a little bit of this. We talked about this middle grade of like, if it doesn't have a sales record, we're not going to take up the shelf space to put it on there. So. Right. Anything that happens, and I think this is part of it. They're saying, we know what kind of books aren't going to sell to a certain degree. We're not going to carry as many of them, so we're not doing as many returns. I guess this is them working. Is this how I win to yeah. quote Uncut well, Gems? Is this how Barnes yeah. & Noble wins at this? I think it's also, Dot notes um, farther down in this interview, that a lot of this has to do with ending the co-op agreements yeah. that allowed publishers to pay for placement in the store. And so, you know, that gave publishers a guarantee that your book will be in the store and it will be in a place where you paid for it to appear, where customers are more likely to encounter it. One of the things James Daunt didn't like about that is that it makes all the stores the same. And he's very much about individual stores having the autonomy to know their communities and select the titles for their stores that they think are the best fits. And so he's attributing this decrease mostly to the co-op agreements having gone away. Mm -hmm. Uh, That when they had the co-op agreements, the chain Barnes & Noble was returning about 30% of its inventory unsold, which was a billion dollars worth of books every year. And that's down to 7%. But he notes that when you're running a bookstore properly, it's about 3%. So, but that decrease from a 30%, yeah, but from 30% down to seven is really notable. And it does point to the idea that like they are returning fewer books. And it seems because the stores are able to select the titles based on what they think people coming into the store are actually going to buy. They're not taking up table space and shelf space with the things the publishers want to put in front of readers. Yeah. And this is like the central conundrum of book discoverability, yep. the gap between what a publisher wants you to discover and what you actually want to read. And it seems like Barnes & Noble, is under Don's leadership, is dialing closer to helping readers discover what readers are interested in. and filling up less of their shelf space with just what publishers want to, you know, push for lack of a better word. The, the flips and, you know, this also goes with along with their strategy, their strategy sort of 
hand in glove, which is also having smaller stores. So you don't carry as many titles, which means you don't have as much inventory management. You don't need as many employees. You have to pay for the square footage, all the things that Mm -hmm. go into that. But there is a certain inexorable logic of that, which is just carry the 20 best-selling books. Like that's the reducto ad absurdum of that. And I'm not sure that wouldn't work, right? I've thought about this. Like what if you're a coffee shop and all you stock, and you also stocked a few books and you just picked the home runs, like your return rate would I mean, be close to zero, but we also kind of don't want It's basically want that, like right? what Hudson News is doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or like an airport or a, Target or something like right. that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But like, we also don't want that because we want a, to have sort of abundance of choice for especially a book, a book person. You don't want to walk into a bookstore to have a bookstore experience. Like, you know, everything that's there on the other hand, yeah. and how fair is that? But also what other store do you expect it of to be a Barnes and Noble? I mean, I guess Best Buy is the equivalent. Like, it's not like <laughs> yeah, you walk into Target, we have all the clothes, like every single right. cloth that you could buy. That's not the expectation of some other like, stores. You know, I go to my local Barnes and Noble like once a month, do a walk around, see what's happening. Yeah. Usually at 3 p.m. to see what the kids are going to put on TikTok. Yeah, you're drinking your frappuccinos and, and making the talks. <laughs> and and I know a lot about the books that are coming out because we we pay mm-hmm. attention to things, but I'm seeing at least in my local stores, like the front tables and the themed tables that the booksellers have put together often have titles either that I haven't read or even that I wasn't aware of. I assume that my reading and awareness is significantly higher than the average person wandering yes, through a I would think so. I would hope any so. given day. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. And so if I can still discover something that I haven't read yet on a table that's being Mm -hmm. curated by my local booksellers, I think that's a pretty strong piece of anecdata. I'll acknowledge that it's anecdata, but I think it's pretty strong that this idea of letting the stores do the buying seems to be it's either working or if nothing else, it's not not working. Um, Their inventory returns are down, sales are up. Barnes and Noble seems to have been pointed back in the you know the right direction that you yep. want to see a business going. This change also allowed them to cut a lot of staff at the corporate level because if you don't have to tell right. the people in the stores what you to put on the table, you field don't need officers. people. Yeah, that's happened. Yeah, you don't need people in those offices doing the telling. It's all happening out in the field. And I feel pretty good about it. You know, like I was a little confused about why I had to wander all the way back to the children's section to find, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret, a week before this movie was coming out. It That's wasn't on any of the big front question. tables. There's not a movie tie-in edition as far as I can tell. I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah, there's I'm genuinely that. shocked. It's really surprising. Maybe the publisher was just didn't anticipate there to be much additional demand for that book. It's probably got pretty steady backlist sales as it goes. Who knows? Um, But there's, you know, a full table full of like rom-coms to read this summer. All the covers look the same, but I hadn't heard of half of them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, Barnes and Noble, like, you are the buyers, at least in my local store, seem to be doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, which is pulling in stuff that will help the reader wandering in that door to discover something that they want to take home with them. And it's just not the same stuff that the publisher is hoping that they'll sell or not necessarily the same stuff. I would The, the last, well, I, I'm not sure how much more Barnes & Noble talk there is going to be in general if they kind of keep humming along. But all these stories talk about, we let the local sellers decide what to stock is there really that much variance? I mean, yeah. I just, I don't, I would like to see a diff, uh, you know, a diff table on like mm-hmm. what the Barnes and Noble and this suburb versus this suburb look like 
in different parts of the country. I, I would guess at the margin, you know, like Matthew McConaughey sells great in Texas. I, I, I'm sure there's stuff like sure. that. Is that enough? Is that all we're really talking about? Maybe that's the kind of thing like book people in Austin. That's their like third best selling book still every every week. And Amazing. if the Barnes and Noble isn't having a, a stack of those available at all times, maybe that's dumb. I was like, you look at the sales and I just don't get, I just don't see what's so hyper local. It feels like there's only a marginal difference. I guess what I'm saying. I, I find it hard to believe yeah, it makes the- that much difference. I think that's a great question. The hyper-locality of it might not be the thing. It might just be Daunt having been like, you know what, publishers don't get to decide what books we're putting on our shelves anymore. Um, And maybe fewer titles plus the end of co-op, that itself in combination with a little margin, like maybe you get three, four percents and suddenly like a 12% increase. Like that can really matter. Mm -hmm. I I don't, but like the actual experience, like if you blindfolded me and took me to a Barnes and Noble and unblindfolded me, walk it in and did that for like six Barnes and Nobles around the country, would I be like, Oh my God, look at, I just don't believe that. It doesn't feel, it doesn't pass my right. experiential like how different test is, these things. How different is my Richmond Barnes & Noble from your Portland Barnes & Noble? I, I Probably not shocked. terribly. You know what? We're finally going to go video. We're going to do side-by-side TikToks of us walking around our local Barnes & Noble, <laughs> looking at what's different. Look at our video strategy, Rebecca. You did it. I knew the day would come. I'm just waiting yeah. for inspiration to strike. I think that better be our show. On that note, uh, Rebecca, thank you so much. As always, you can email us your mom's, dad's, and grad's recommendation requests at podcastabookwrite.com. Check out First Edition everywhere you your podcasts. Rebecca and I will be talking on that show about the It Books of May. We'll be doing our knockout rounds there. A lot of fun. Again, that comes out on the, um, the 3rd, on Wednesday the 3rd. But the, our April knockout round on the first edition, the first edition, the first episode, I'm doing this all the time. Go check that out. Also, my Substack um, that I'm doing a little ancillary content for. Put a link to my um, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Very, very uh, impromptu uh, discussion of some of the titles. Uh, And uh, I guess that's everything for this week, Rebecca. We'll talk to you real soon. All right. Have a good one. 